Well, good morning. God has been so kind to us. Give us a Savior, uh, a friend, a Messiah, and uh, as we're going to look at today, a great high priest. I want to invite you to turn to uh, Hebrews 7. If you've got your phone, you can flip over that way, but that's where we're going to be today. And I want to start with um, a little bit of context or background. This is somewhat of a part two of uh, Jeff's message last week as we go through uh, chapter 7. In 2012, uh, Matt Chandler wrote a book called The Explicit Gospel. I don't know how many of you read that. It's really a terrific read, very insightful and practical. Um, He really felt like the church needed some clarification around, we use the gospel, that word gospel, sort of flippantly or carelessly and don't necessarily know what we're talking about. So he wanted to bring some clarity to that. I think he did a good job. He distinguishes the gospel in kind of two expressions. One is what he calls gospel on the ground. The other one is gospel in the air. I think it's a helpful distinction. The gospel on the ground you might think of as kind of a micro perspective. And then the gospel in the air would be the macro. That's the big picture. Um, Gospel on the ground takes you through a progression of God, man, Christ, and response. So it really is when we think about sharing our faith or sharing the gospel, that, that would be what we would typically think about. I like his description. It's the power of grace for human transformation, certainly beginning with conversion, but then going all the way to glorification Uh, at the end of time. So that's gospel on the ground. Then you have gospel in the air. And that is this, again, this real big picture kind of framework that goes from creation to fall to reconciliation and then consummation. So it's the big story of all of history. That's the gospel in the air. Uh, Chandler describes it this way. The big picture of God's plan of restoration from the beginning of time to the end of time and the redemption of his creation. So that matters. That's not just sort of an interesting thing to think about. We are all caught up in that gospel in the air because of our engagement with the gospel on the ground. I hope that makes sense. So we want to have that in in context, and then as we move into uh, Hebrews 7, we're caught up in an, a story arc that, that the writer of Hebrews points to again and again and again. It, we, we've mentioned that he uses more of the Old Testament in his letter to the Hebrews than any other New Testament book. So if we don't know our Old Testament and we don't know that larger story, it's really hard to keep up, and it's easy to get lost. So I want to mention this story arc, which is full of some historical facts, but these facts are essential to our understanding of what he's addressing in Hebrews 7. So um, 
we begin our understanding of what the Hebrew writer or the writer of Hebrews is saying with the covenant of Abraham. We mentioned that. That's where God is launching the nation of Israel through this man and through his promises to that man. Then you fast forward 630 years and you have Israel in captivity in Egypt and they are led out of captivity. This is in the book of Exodus by Moses, and we see them becoming God's people headed to a promised land. God makes two provisions for the people of Israel when they come out of Egypt. One is, again, under the leadership of Moses, the law, and, and you can think about the first five books of your Bible. That sort of all constitutes the law. There's, there's narrative there. There's story in Genesis and Exodus. But Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are really telling Israel, this is how I want you to live as my people. So that's the law. And then God also gives them another thing. He gives them a priesthood. It is a tribe within the nation of Israel under the tribe of Levi, and you'll hear me say Levitical or the Levites, okay, that's a tribe within Israel, and God designated that tribe as the priesthood for his people. They would ensure that Israel understood and applied and followed the law that they had been given by God in terms of just how they're going to do life day in and day out. Those were two gifts that God gave his people as they came out of Egypt and headed toward the promised land. Moses' brother, Aaron, was the first great high priest. He was the first head of that Levitical priesthood. So you'll hear him reference as we get into this passage. Okay, now I need you to fast forward another 450 years, and you're at the time of King David. He wrote many of the Psalms. One in particular is Psalm 110, referenced more than any other Old Testament book in the book of Hebrews. He goes back to 110 again and again and again. I think it's the most quoted Psalm in all of the New Testament. So in Psalm 110, you have a, a mention of a new priesthood according to a guy named Melchizedek. Jeff introduced us to that guy last week. A little obscure, we'll talk more about that today, but in this psalm, 450 years after uh, all that God did with Israel through Moses and Aaron, you have a new priesthood mentioned. That's going to create some potential confusion and certainly some curiosity on the part of everybody who's reading that book. And then this guy named Melchizedek shows up who's very obscure. He mentioned one place in the book of Genesis. Now fast forward one more millennium, a thousand years, and Jesus shows up. And there is this curious association with that strange, obscure guy that was mentioned hundreds of years earlier, Melchizedek. And when you look at the story of Jesus' incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, and then his ascension, all of that gets pulled into this story arc and this oath 
that God made that another priest would arise and he would be associated with Melchizedek. So that's all context. That's all background. And there is way, way more than that that I want to encourage you to invest some time reading about and thinking about. It will only enrich your understanding of what God is trying to say to us through this letter. So here we are, Hebrews 7. And uh, as I thought about what, what is the writer doing here, and I know a lot of you will understand this even experientially, he is presenting the ultimate reorganization. Now, when you hear that word, if you've ever been through one, it's not fun, right? It's like another company comes in or a new leader comes in or somebody comes in and says, hey, we're going to shuffle the deck, man. We're going to move people around. Some people are going to go. Some people are going to stay. I mean, it's very disruptive, right? Now, I want you to imagine after hundreds upon hundreds of years of a priesthood, a gift that God gave his people, and this guy Jesus comes in And basically, everybody understands we're going to have the ultimate reorganization. Things are going to change in a big way in terms of how God's people relate to him and him to them. So with that kind of framework in mind, let's begin in verse 11. The writer says this, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, For under it, the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Think reorganization. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Now, just as a little aside, if you don't understand the framework of tribes in the context of Israel in the Old Testament, can you already see how You have no clue what in the world he's talking about. So very helpful to read your Old Testament and understand how that thing plays out. Back to the text in verse 11. He mentions perfection. If perfection had been attainable, which means that was the plan. And when you read perfection, you should think consummation in that framework that... uh, that Chandler gave us, remember, in the gospel in the air? So when he says perfection, he's talking about consummation, the completion of God's plan. It implies a return to a sinless condition that would have been similar to, but not exactly like, the conditions of the garden when creation began. It does explicitly refer to the completion of Redemption, and you might just jot down Revelation 21. You could read that and get a very vivid description of what that means, but there's a simple phrase that will sum it up all things made new. That's what perfection is talking about. It's the arrival at that condition. 
Now, the Levitical priests and the law represented the means by which perfection would be achieved. Now, when I say that, I'm not saying that people arrived at salvation or perfection or completion and all that by fulfilling the law. Salvation has never been by law. It's always been by grace. But the Levitical priesthood and the law were to play an instrumental role in people still arriving at this idea of perfection or completion. It had a role to play, just not the role that everybody thought it would have. In and of themselves, the law and the priesthood could not produce the perfection that was envisioned. We're going to find out they're incapable of doing that. And God never intended them to do that. He did have a purpose for those things, just not what was expected. So as a result, another priest, as the writer mentions, is necessary or required. And when you see the word another, you should think completely new. Nothing like the other priests. Radically different. It's not just another version. It's not even just a little better version. It is a completely different version that is exactly what God requires in order for people to get to that place of completion. Specifically, this another priest could not be in the line of Levi. Now, again, remember, you're a Jew, and all you've ever known is a Levitical priesthood. And now you hear that we got to have another priest, and he can't be in the Levitical line. That's kind of hard to get your head around. Now, Jesus met that criteria because he's from the tribe of Judah. That's his human descendant. Uh, that's his human uh, genealogy. So he, he can be this new priest because he's not from the line of Levi, but he's from the tribe of Judah, which is the tribe of kings. Think King David and on down the line. Now, here's the rub on that. It, they're saying, okay, he, he, he's not from the tribe of Levi. I don't, I don't think that's possible because that's what God said is all of our priests are from uh, the tribe of Levi. And he's from the tribe of Judah. That means he's going to be a king. And we've never, ever, ever had a king and a priest holding those offices simultaneously. Never. You're either a priest or a king. Never both. So a lot of obstacles here, a lot of confusion probably on the part of these Jews when Jesus was presented to them as a potential new high priest. Now that's where Melchizedek comes in. He helps make sense of what God is doing in his reorganization. Uh, we're going to see here that Jesus was made in the likeness of Melchizedek. We'll get to that. Um, I want to remind us, last week we learned that Melchizedek was the king of Salem. So he is a king. And he was also said to be the priest of God Most High. That's all taken from Genesis 14. So here we have a guy who is a king and a priest simultaneously. And that's going to be a key connection to Jesus as the new high priest. Um, 
He is the priest king mentioned in Psalm 110, again, which we've looked at it a few times. We'll look again more today. Singular in his office. And he foreshadows the priest king that Jesus would eventually become at the point of his ascension. Melchizedek's priesthood was superior to the Levitical priesthood for two reasons. First of all, his preceded theirs. In Genesis 14, when Melchizedek and Abraham cross paths, there is no Israel, there is no Isaac, there is no priesthood. But Melchizedek is a priest, and he is a king. And he is a priest to God Most High. So he has some kind of association with Yahweh, even though he isn't within the nation of Israel, which again doesn't exist yet. So his priesthood precedes the Levitical priesthood. And he is superior to, as Jeff showed us last week, he is superior to Abraham. Remember, Abraham gives a tithe to Melchizedek as a way of honoring him as a superior. Melchizedek, as a priest, blesses Abraham. So if he is superior to Abraham, then he is superior to anything and everything that comes after Abraham under his family line, which includes the Levitical priesthood. So whether the Jews recognize that or not, God is saying, this guy is my guy. He is superior to everyone that's going to come after Abraham. And therefore, if I choose to reorganize things within the nation of Israel under one who is like this one, Melchizedek, that's the way it's going to be. And you'll need to get in line. You'll need to follow that lead. Now, it's on that basis of Melchizedek's superiority to Abraham and the Levitical line that this later priest, Jesus, who arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, is a legitimate replacement. So remember the obstacles. He's not from the tribe of Levi. He is from the tribe of Judah. All those obstacles, they're resolved here because of his association with Melchizedek. Look at verse 15. This becomes more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, let's remind ourselves of what we heard last week from uh, earlier in chapter 7. The writer said that he, speaking of Melchizedek, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, Jeff explained last week that those descriptions... They're very vivid and sort of curious, but all they represent is the lack of information that we find in the record of him in the book of Genesis. So we don't need to make it more mystical or mysterious than it is. It's just saying this is what we know about him, which is very little. 
We don't know his genealogy. We don't know father and mother, birth and death. And that represents or symbolizes one who has eternal life before and after. That's the picture. It doesn't mean that that was literally true of him. It just means that that is what he represents as a type of one to come who that would be true of. Jesus, right? He is eternal. He does have time past and time forward without any kind of limitation. So his obscurity lends itself to the idea of indestructibility. Indestructibility is simply saying this one can't be destroyed, done away with. And that will be the linkage between Jesus and Melchizedek in terms of being a legitimate priesthood. Um, Jesus is undeniably indestructible as evidenced through the resurrection, right? So he certainly fulfilled that in a literal way. So to summarize, the writer of Hebrews draws a sharp contrast between the insufficiency of the law and the Levitical priesthood and the sufficiency of Jesus. Look at verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. Underline that. The law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The law and its priests in this reorganization are to be set aside or dismissed, not because they didn't serve any function, but because they could not serve the function that was necessary in order to arrive at perfection or consummation. They just can't get the job done and they were never intended to do so. So in other words, the law was given to the people of Israel. They were told to obey it. Blessing and curses were attached to their response to or conformity with the law. But God knew they would never be able to perfectly obey the law. And and so it can't get them to salvation. All it can do is show them their need. And that was the purpose of the law. And the priests in alignment with the law, that's exactly what they should have done. They should have said again and again, hold up the standard and everybody's like, we can't, we can't meet that standard. And the, the priest should say, you're right. But there's one who can. And he's coming. And you need to trust in him, not in yourselves. The law ought to rid you of any shred of faith that you possess in yourself. That's the purpose of the law. It is not meant to bring salvation to anyone. Now this other one will fulfill the law perfectly and therefore is able to bring salvation to all who trust in him. He is the better hope. 
He's the priest who can actually bring about the life that could not be found in the priesthood and the law previously. I want you to write down Galatians 3. And actually, the whole book of of Galatians addresses the the issues um, that Jews had with understanding their movement away from the law into uh, this place of grace and mercy in Christ. But I want to read specifically Galatians 3, 24 through 26. This is Paul's understanding of the law and its purpose. So then the law was our guardian, great word, until Christ came. It had a purpose, it had a function, just not what everybody thought it was. So it was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified, not by obedience to the law, but by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So here's a big idea, major takeaway from this. Sinful people are not made perfect by the law, but by the priestly ministry of Jesus. Let me say that again. Sinful people like you and me, are not made perfect by the law, but only by the priestly ministry of Jesus. Now, there's a huge principle here for discipleship. If you think that getting someone to conform to a bunch of rules is going to lead them to life, you are horribly mistaken. Only Christ can lead anyone to life. So when we think about, if you're discipling someone, again, you hold up the standard. There's plenty of commands in the New Testament. We're called to obey those commands. But if we are obeying those commands as a means of getting in God's good graces, we've got it backwards. The reason that we obey commands, the reason that we conform to the rules that God gives us is because we're already in his good graces. It's it's out of a heart of gratitude that we say, God, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do it just because you love me. You care about me. You want what's best for me. So I'm going to obey because you love me not so that you will love me. Huge distinction, major principle for discipleship. Well, okay, so now we're at the second half of this segment. And here we're gonna see why the new priesthood of Jesus is better, all right? So hang on, we're gonna fly. First of all, the new priesthood of Jesus is better because it was established with God's oath. Look at verse 20. It was not without an oath, meaning his priesthood. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So Levitical priests were made priests out of tribal affiliation, period. There were no other qualifications. 
you could have the character of a toad and be a priest. So that's how the Levitical line continued, which means you could have great priests and horrible priests. Not so with Jesus. He was inducted into the priesthood by God the Father with an unchangeable oath. God declared, you are a priest. And he did so because of the nature and character and quality of the son. That's what qualified him to be a priest according to and in the likeness of Melchizedek. Notice in the quote from Psalm 110 that the oath is made by God the Father to God the Son, which is different than the Abrahamic covenant and oath. Remember, God made that oath to Abraham, a man. Remember that it was, uh, he did that independently, so it was an uh, an unconditional oath. It wasn't conditioned upon Abraham. Um, listen a couple of weeks ago to that message about the, the Abrahamic covenant. But this just ought to blow us away. This is God swearing to God that he's going to do what he said he's going to do. Now, can you imagine God betraying God? That ought to be great assurance for you and me. And this is actually telling us how the commitment that God made to Abraham is going to be fulfilled. God said to Abraham, I am going to make of you a great nation. You're going to reach all of the world. You're going to have a great inheritance. And we know that the only way that that's going to happen is because of God's commitment to himself from the father to the son in, the, in terms of establishing him as the great high priest. That's how it's going to get done. Ought to be great encouragement. And the fact that Jesus was the recipient of that oath, that it were, we're told it makes him the guarantor. You might write, uh, one pastor said, a co-signer on the note. So he's on the hook for this happening. And he's going to make sure that it happens. Not as if he has to help the father get it done. But I'm just saying, you've got God the father and God the son saying to each other, this is a done deal. No questions, no possibility of failure. So the priesthood of Jesus is better because it was established with God's oath. Secondly, it is permanent. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, again, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, these are the sweetest words, goodness gracious, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Man, spend some devotional time thinking about that. Let that encourage your hearts. There is no better antidote for fear for doubt, for discouragement, than knowing that Jesus Christ is perpetually, perpetually sitting in the presence of God the Father and making intercession for you. As if you were the only one. The Levitical priests were inferior basically just because they died. 
They couldn't continue to do what they were called by God to do or assigned by God to do at the end of life. And the reason is because once they died, they were like every other human being in all of human history. We're going to read this, uh, study this later in Hebrews 9, 27, but it says, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. They're in line for judgment with everybody else, regardless of the office or position that you hold. That's the future for them. So they could no longer be priests for people once they died. It's done. They're over. And then beyond that, they never possessed the ability to secure salvation anyway. Like their rituals, their practices, all of that was again, that was intended to be a picture, a foreshadowing of a sacrifice that would secure salvation. Hebrews 10, 4 says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, period. So all of those sacrifices, those did not secure forgiveness for God's people. What, what happened was they saw that sacrifice and, and they would have known that's not going to secure my forgiveness. That's just a dumb animal that just died. But the picture is pointing forward to one who will die in my place. That will secure my forgiveness and eternal life. So their faith is not in that dead animal. Their faith is in a Savior who would lay down his life on their behalf. Now, by contrast to the Levitical priests... Jesus gained salvation for all who draw near to God by grace through faith. And he did so as the great high priest. And here's the kicker. By laying down himself as the sacrifice. So if you would have been a Jew and seen the temple sacrifices, you would have seen this high priest taking an animal, slitting its throat or whatever, bloods out and all that kind of jazz. And the animal dies. This is the high priest himself saying, I'm going to lay down my life. I am the sacrifice. And I'm the high priest that offers the sacrifice. And it is perfectly satisfactory to the Father so that his wrath is satisfied and humanity gains forgiveness. There are two huge encouragements here. That phrase, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. That word uttermost, you can think of in the fullest sense, to the furthest extent, as far as is necessary to get you to perfection. So it really doesn't matter how far you have to go. He can go as far as it takes. That's the idea. It's beautiful. And then secondly, Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. The reason that he can is because he is indestructible. Remember that attribute earlier that tied him to Melchizedek. So his redemptive work is complete. When he laid down his life, rose from the dead, and ascended to heaven, it's done. 
and it will perpetually be done for all of eternity, which is even kind of hard to get our minds around. But he doesn't have to offer any more sacrifices. And that's actually where this passage ends in terms of the quality of his sacrifice. It is perfect in every way. His priesthood is perfect in every way. Verse 26, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. Here's the catch. First for his own sins, and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Here's the big idea. Jesus is everything we need in a high priest. We can literally discard all that came before him. It served its purpose. We have a record of it, beautiful picture, but all we need is Jesus. He is completely satisfactory. He is flawless. He is faithful. He is incorruptible. He is infinitely superior to anything and everything and everyone and therefore separated from sinful humanity. And, and that's such a beautiful thing that he can get so close to sinful humanity and yet be completely separated in terms of his character and quality. And then he identifies with us uh, as our substitute. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And as a result, the writer of Hebrews says he is exalted above the heavens. And he is so, as Revelation 4.11 says, because he is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Isn't that encouraging? The idea of having a priest, that, that may be really foreign to you. Um, perhaps if you learn more about it from the scriptures in terms of its history, you'll find yourself doing exactly what's described here, drawing near to God because of this great high priest that he put in place for you so that you could do just that. Take a moment, if you would, and uh, lots of information here. I guess I wonder how, how comfortable you are with this idea of drawing near and having this high priest who, as we said a couple of weeks ago, has gone through the veil into the Holy, Holy, into the Holy of Holies and made a way for you to sit in his presence, forgiven and restored. So take a moment and just, again, think about how can you move in that direction in light of what the writer has said is true of Jesus and true of you. Take a moment and pray about that.
Father in heaven, so thankful for this uh, beautiful insight from your word into the redemptive plan that you have been working out through all of history. Grateful that you have shown us our need. Pray that you'd give us hearts that are receptive to that. Lord, I pray that we would be emptied of our faith in ourselves and we would come to you needy, desperate, dependent, and grateful for our high priest who has done everything for us that we could never do for ourselves. Thank you for entry into your presence. And Lord, would you cause that to change us day after day uh, that we might be more and more like our high priest, have a heart like his. And uh, Lord, we look forward to the day when things are all made new pray that you'd help us hold on to that hope as we uh, walk out this life that you've given us. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.